Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well wherever you are in the world, whatever you are working on, whatever you're doing in this given moment. Hope you guys are doing all right. Though I know personally I come to podcasts a lot of the time, sometimes when I'm just like doing my day-to-day stuff, but a lot of times when I need a little break or distraction from when life gets hard. That's often when I find podcasts and when I listen to them. So if you're not doing so great today, just know I'm here for you. Even if I'm not physically there for you, like next to you, giving you a hug, I am here talking in hopes that whatever I'm about to say could maybe ease what you're going through or just distract you for 40 minutes of your day and kind of just focus your attention to something interesting, something that might interest you, something that might inspire you and inspire your next great thing, like who the heck knows. So today, this episode is going to be very raw, very real, very interesting, as I hope many of my episodes are, because today I'm finally taking a stab at something that's been on my heart and on my mind for months, especially right now. It's really come to a head right now as it's been Fashion Week and it's been Influencer Central in New York City. A lot of influencers, a lot of fashion focused influencers or those who are even minorly fashion focused like myself have been going to shows, have been going to parties, have been going to presentations for these fashion brands. A lot of skincare, hair, makeup have kind of latched onto that as well and have released products this past week. Like this is a time, it's always a time, September, when New York City is just a buzz with influential people. Celebrities even, I mean, celebrities are like obviously the first influential people and then the influencers are in their own category or our own category of somehow we've gotten invited to things, but no one really knows how or why or if we're even supposed to be there. But if I had to kind of sum it up, the reason why influencers are so heavily involved in Fashion Week and a lot of things, but Fashion Week specifically or why they're invited to everything, why you see influencers being invited to these like legit fashion shows. The reason is because a lot of these fashion shows are put on by PR companies or by agencies. And it's not necessarily like the brand or the brand creator specifically who's like handing out invitations anymore. It's this PR company that is hired to put on the event and they want their event to get the most impressions. They want to get on the most publications, websites, like they want to be front and center. This was the event of Fashion Week. And let's be real, with the rise of TikTok, with the rise of all these social media platforms, 
influencers are going to help them get their event there. Yes, celebrities are obviously also players in Fashion Week. Celebrities go to parties, they go to runway shows, they're in the runway shows, they're influential, but they're also very expensive and they're hard to nail down for deliverables. And they certainly would never do anything for free. Or like it would take a lot, like a friend or some sort of relationship for them to do something for free or low cost. They're very expensive. Meanwhile, influencers, they don't really have to pay anyone. They just give them an, you know, a front row seat and they get what, like six story frames, a reel, an infeed for free in some instances, not all, obviously. But it's the reason why a lot of brands use influencers for literally anything over a celebrity spokesperson because they're cheaper, because they know their audiences to a point where they can influence them. You know? I mean, that could be the most obvious answer to the question, why are influencers invited to New York Fashion Week? And why are we seeing them everywhere? Why does it seem like people that maybe don't deserve to go? Like, shouldn't buyers be going? Shouldn't people that our small fashion brand owners, shouldn't they be going? The answer is yes, 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 a million times yes. But these PR companies, these agencies, even the brands themselves are looking for just to get the biggest bang for their buck as everyone in the world is, it seems. And that is why. And truthfully, there have been events I've been invited to and I just, I look at the invitation and I'm like, I have no value to add to this. Like, yes, I have a following that I can show videos and photos from this event. It just doesn't feel on brand for me. But then I'm like, well, what even is my brand? Like, I'm just a person at the end of the day. Like, it's so hard with this new age of influencer, a word that never existed in this context of social media. Social media didn't even exist. So now everyone's just trying to figure out what to do. And it's tough for those influencers who are so excited about fashion and going to these events. And then they just get like torn apart on social media for their outfits, for people saying they don't have a right to be there. And it's just like, so are you supposed to say no? It's really just been one of those learning experiences for literally everyone. And at the end of the day, influence and influencers, people of influence, people wanting to be of influence here in New York City is not a new concept, which is what I'm going to get into with talking about the Gilded Age of Manhattan today. But I guess before I do that, I do want to just like say a few more things about New York Fashion Week in my perspective of being an influencer here. I think it's been an explosion the past couple of years of influencers being invited to these sorts of things. But obviously, Fashion Week has been going on forever. I believe I saw somewhere on the internet that it was founded or started in the 40s. So it's been around for a long time. And obviously, previously, it started over in Europe. And I'm no expert, but I believe the first people invited to these sorts of things were celebrities, were editors, were stylists, were, you know, maybe buyers. Buyers have specific like market appointments with a lot of designers that, that I have learned from working freelance. But it's been like specific kinds of people. And then now it's there's emerged this like new sort of celebrity and it's hard to nail down like, you know, with a celebrity, it's like, okay, if they've had a Vogue cover, they'll be at this event. Or if they've, you know, certain accomplishments. With influencers, it's like, you know, people like to say, oh, if they have over this many followers. But then you see it's like there's so much gray area because it's like, oh, but we prefer people that have smaller followings but are super niche. And then people are like, oh, we're obsessed with the niche, but then we're obsessed with the number of followers. But then we're realizing, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter how many followers you have to be influential. It matters how many of those people are going to convert, how many of those people. Like you could have a million followers, but 
only five of them click your links. So maybe we should hone in on those smaller influencers that have higher conversion rates. And then people were like, well, like, how do you even calculate a conversion rate? Like, this is a stream of consciousness conversation about how people have decided which influencers are of high influence and how to measure influence. And this is where it's gotten so hairy. And as a freelancer who works in social digital strategy, it's been even hard for me to hone in on it. And as an influencer myself and working with my management company who tries to figure out how to pitch me with like, what would we consider my rate? It's just a whole freaking mess over here. Okay. And so you wind up at these shows and people are like, okay, why is this person here? And I'm seeing it on the internet. Like I'm seeing like people commenting on TikToks being like, why is this person at this show? Like sitting across from Anna Wintour. Like, why is this person here? They'll usually say like, oh, like they only have like this many followers or they do this or this. But we forget to consider not only the number of followers, but also like, who is this person? Who do they know? Who is their management? Do they have a PR team who is pitching them for things, who is asking for favors? What is going on behind the scenes? It's just such an interesting, interesting thing when you really deep dive like all of the things a person does to get where they are. And you can draw a lot of parallels with this. I was talking to actually my trainer this morning about this. There's a lot of parallels in life from like these sorts of things, like who knows who and how you get invited to things and like who's who's the coolest person in the room. And you can draw parallels to different parts of, of just any person's life. It is very similar to sorority recruitment or getting onto a sports team. It isn't always talent. It isn't always numbers. A lot of it is who you know, being in the right place at the right time, sitting next to the right person at a dinner party and pitching yourself. Making someone else believe that you are influential is half the battle of influence. Like it doesn't matter how many people you convince. If you just convince the right people, you'll be invited to things. And this has just been a mind-blowing thing for me to, to realize and it's not even just fashion week. It's people that get jobs these days. It's, it is a lot of who you know. Obviously, you have to have some degree of talent, even if the talent itself is not so much what you're doing, but how you speak about yourself, how you present yourself so people believe you, so people trust in you. I mean, we can think about the Inventing Anna documentary, like how she was able to fool people just because she was very confident and very good at hustling and getting her foot in the door and getting in those right rooms at the right time with the right people. And it's a lot of work. So if you see an influencer who's at an event and you might think, oh, I don't think that they deserve to be there. Like they must have busted their butt to get themselves there or someone did or they spent some sort of sum of money or something of those of that nature. And it's so, so, so much work. It is, even if you don't think it is. Like it is, someone did the work, even if it's like someone down the line in their lineage, someone did the work. And I think about it in terms of being an influencer and thinking like, oh, if I only did these things, maybe I'd be taken more seriously in different rooms or in different industries. But then I sit back and I think about where I started and why I started. And I know you're probably sick of hearing influencers say like, oh, you know, I never asked for this life because I just was this age and I was young and I just started making videos or I started doing this. I started writing. I started singing. You know, that is how a lot of people start. They don't really know what they're getting themselves into. They aren't seeking fame. They're just seeking understanding. Like that was what I was looking for. I was just looking to find a community of people who thought like me or cared about the same things that I cared about. And that's why I started my YouTube channel. 
But now it's evolved into this thing where you really have to fight for that. And the fighting, it's exhausting. And I talk to other influencers that have been at these events and everyone is just exhausted and tired and overwhelmed. And it feels like this huge high school popularity contest that I have no interest in reliving. Like I already dealt with the bullying of high school, of feeling like I was trying to climb the totem pole, but I didn't feel like I was moving. I didn't feel like anyone liked me. I'm so sick of worrying about that. And so I've decided, I mean, even just this fashion week, I only went to a few things that I was really passionate about. Like my best friend Colby, she put on the Rebecca Minkoff presentation. I've been seeing her work towards this for weeks and I wanted to be there to celebrate her and the team. And Cynthia Rowley, another show that I went to that I was so, so excited about. I know Cynthia Rowley. She taught me how to surf. Like I'm good friends with her daughter, Kit. I have personal connections to these women. But going to events just to say that I went or because I potentially want a partnership, this is just speaking personally as someone who I don't proclaim myself to be a fashion influencer. I'm interested in it, but I'm more interested in people. I think the bread and butter of what I do is people and understanding people and making people feel good. I think I was sitting at this fashion show yesterday, like seeing Cynthia Rowley's designs come out, just feeling so happy for her and proud of her and looking around and just I don't know why this came over me, but I was like, I don't need my brand to be fashion. I don't need to wear the constantly like the trendiest things and wear a new outfit every single day. I just want to live my life and have my platform be a place where people can feel a sense of relief, a sense of community, a sense of we are the same and just inspired to do what what satisfies them and not necessarily to buy all the time. I want people to feel like a warmth when they see my content and not feel like I'm one-upping them or I'm better than them. And the same goes for my relationship with other influencers. I'm constantly meeting people. I feel like I'm in a little bit of a squad here with other girls that do exactly what I do. To some extent different, obviously we're not the exact same. That's the whole point. We're all different. But being with them, I don't want them to ever feel like I'm asking, I'm like, oh, what are you going to next? Or are you going to this thing? Trying to be like, oh, you didn't get invited. It's just like high school all over again, kind of sizing each other up and the competition of it all. But we're really not in the competition because one of anybody's success in the field that you're in is your success too. It really is. Like their success is not my failure. Like you've probably seen this TikTok. I believe it was Girl Boss Town who I love. Um, her name's Robin. I actually haven't met her, which I do want to meet her. I feel like she'd be so down to earth and cool. But she made a video where she's like imitating influencers at Fashion Week and everyone's like, so what show are you going to next? Or, oh, like, who are you wearing? Who did your glam? Or how long are you in town for? Things like that. It's just like people are just trying to size you up constantly in this industry. And maybe it's every industry. Maybe everyone in the workplace and any field is like just constantly feeling they're being sized up or sizing other people up or trying to get the tea as to why this person got a promotion and not that person. But it just feels like a rerun of high school so often in all of these fields and especially in New York City. And I don't think it'll ever end. And like I'm about to say today in this little story I'm going to tell about the Gilded Age of New York City, it's always been around and it always will be. If you have the energy for it, there's always going to be an opportunity to gain more influence. But it's a very slippery slope because you make one false step and you could lose it all. 
So with that, let's go back in time, as I often do, but haven't in a while, so I'm happy that I have a little history to share today because it really does just light me up inside to share these stories. Today, we're going to talk about the Gilded Age. So like I said, clicks and these like popularity contests with the backdrop of New York City have been around for as long as time, and a notable period of this happening and kind of where it started here was the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age in the United States spanned from the 1870s until the dawn of the 20th century. And the term Gilded Age was actually coined by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. The name Gilded Age was essentially kind of created out of sarcasm or I'm trying to search for the word in my brain here, but it's kind of like an oxymoron or a contradiction because the name Gilded Age, it was pretty much a criticism of the hidden inequality of life at that time. The gold, splendor, lavish richness harnessed by the rich and the high society members, which was carefully disguising the many, many social problems plaguing the U.S. Like, can we just be so grand and so sparkly that no one will notice that there's like so much shit hitting the fan in the U.S., like literally at every corner? Mark Twain said the chief end of man was, quote, to get rich. In what way, he said? Dishonestly, if we can. Honestly, if we must. So essentially doing whatever you could to get rich and to be known and highly regarded by everyone around you, even if it meant cutting corners or lying. In the decades following the American Civil War, the population of New York City was growing exponentially. Both immigrants and wealthy families from literally everywhere all dreamed of finding success and status in this city, challenging the longtime dominance of the old New York families that had been sitting pretty for generations prior to the Civil War. And because we just, you know, can't accept that there's room at the table for everybody— Hence, like my whole conversation before, and everybody, you know, at said table won't always get a good seat. It's not like a circular table in New York City. Not everyone is at eye level with each other. Like there's going to be like a first row and a second row and we can't even sit at the same table because we're not, you know, it's how things have always been really everywhere. But even in the Gilded Age, the 1880s, people of influence flocked here and hoped to experience some sort of affirmation or confirmation rather, that they were in, they were somebody. And that is where this list, this famous list came into play. And this list was called the 400. A man named Ward McAllister coined the phrase, quote, the 400, by essentially declaring that there were only 400 people in fashionable New York society, period. Like 400 people, that's it. And this list of 400 names, the creme de la creme of New York City high society, men and women, was published in the New York Times in 1882. It was literally published with names. It's like, it's literally like you're checking the list to see who got into the school play. I remember this school production where only like a certain number of people were allowed in. And you had to obviously try out for it. And I remember the drama teacher would actually leave school 30 minutes before the list was published because people were known to slash her tires if they weren't let into the school show. Like it literally feels like that. But this was a list that was actually published in the New York Times in 1882. According to this guy, Ward McAllister, who created the 400, this was the number of people in New York who really mattered. The people who, quote, felt at ease in the ballrooms of high society. 
1888, Ward McAllister told the New York Tribune that if you go outside that number, that 400, he warned, you come across people who are either not at ease in a ballroom or else make other people not at ease. (laughs) So he basically is like in flowery terms saying these people are fun to party with. And if you're not on this list, you're not fun to party with pretty much. Like it, it also kind of is reminiscent of like people letting, I don't know, I went to a hugely fraternity party ridden school or not ridden, what's the word? Like a lot of the social atmosphere was led by fraternity parties because we only had two bars and they wouldn't let underage kids in. So like, you know, the parties were like the huge center of social society at my college. And I remember going to these parties and them like having strict rules for who were allowed into each party or like which sororities were allowed. And don't even get me started on like who's allowed in each sorority. And it's all based on coolness. And it's just like, it's exhausting to even talk about. But this was a legit thing. New York Times, everyone. So to give a bit more color and context to our story, I want to talk a bit about this guy, Ward McAllister, the original influencer or the guy who decided who was an influencer at this time. And in partnership with one of New York's oldest families, the Astors, which I'll also get into, Ward McAllister created this list and he was feared by many people during his reign as New York City party master. Ward McAllister in the 1880s decided who and what was cool and who and what was not. Where did he get his influence? Why did people listen to this guy? Let's talk about him and his interesting story, Rise to Fame. So Ward McAllister, who would go on to be called the ruler of drawing rooms and who made influence and social hierarchy of New York City his business, was not born wealthy. And he didn't even really go on to become very wealthy, at least not nearly as well off as the families who feared him and his list and his rulings. So Ward grew up in Savannah, Georgia in the 20s, 1820s. And though his family had some social standing, they were like politically savvy. They had very little money. The McAllisters spent their summers, though, in Newport, Rhode Island, which was a common escape for Southerners fleeing the thick summertime heat. And eventually, wealthy New Yorkers would also visit Newport during the hot months and would build summer cottages there, which is how many Southerners and Northerners would meet and would intertwine. So Ward McAllister, through his trips to Newport, through you know growing up and just looking around and wondering, he was fascinated early on with the elite members of society. When he was young, he moved in with a wealthy relative of his in New York, hoping to be left all of her money. But when she died, she gave him only a small little bit of money in her will. He was devastated, disappointed, but he decided to get crafty with what he was given. So he used all of that money or like most of it that she left him on one evening outfit. He was invited to like some high society ball in New York and he dressed himself to the nines and essentially let the people there at this party kind of just like assume that he was going to inherit all the relatives money and draw their own conclusions about him because, you know, he looked amazing and he was just going to talk a big game and let people believe what they will. And He quite literally dressed the part and people were either too dense or just too trusting or too rich to dig deeper. Ward McAllister was a lawyer by trade and prior to his New York life, he worked in San Francisco during the gold rush. And this is where Ward began to study the art of giving dinners, as his memoir said. 
So the art of entertaining, of schmoozing, of finding his way into the upper echelons of society through alcohol and parties, pretty much. So around 1852, Ward married heiress Sarah Tainter Gibbons, who was called or kind of referred to as a reclusive woman. She didn't really have much interest in partying and of being in society, and she really only appears once or twice in his memoir. Sarah wasn't extremely interested in Ward's social pursuits, which was honestly probably fine with him, as it left all the planning to him, which aided his efforts. Like, he really wanted to be elite, and he had her money now, and it was probably a lot of fun for him. He was pretty much New York's first party planner. Experts on the Gilded Age have credited Ward McAllister's ability to climb those rungs of high society New York, and he did it so nimbly. Like, everyone has said that the reason for this, how he was able to do it, was truly because of the timing. The Gilded Age was a time when old New York, these oldest families who had been sitting comfortably at the top for so long, they were being confronted with a problem with all of these fresh meat individuals, all of the wealthy newcomers coming into their city and trying to be cooler than them. These people with new money who were building these lavish properties and lobbying for political positions, owning companies, just like coming and kind of scooping their New York out from under them and often stepping on their toes in the process. And back then they called people with old money knobs and those with new money swells. There was a general uncertainty in the air during this time. Like who was cool, who was not, who was on the up and up and who was next to crash and burn. It was all kind of just thrown up in the air and people were kind of panicking and needed some sort of structure. Prior to creating the famous 400-person list, Ward McAllister shot a bit lower. He gathered a squad of about 25 men that eventually rose to 50 men that he called the Patriarchs. And it was a club of sorts for like the best of the best, kind of like a country club vibe or like, you know, a men's society of sorts that he created called the Patriarchs. And if you think about it, like who doesn't love and respect the guy who gave him a spot? in an exclusive, maybe even meaningless club. Like it just increased Ward's street cred amongst the men that he invited into this club. And this is where the Astors come in. So if you've ever been to the city, you know that the name Astor is everywhere, like Astor Place, et cetera. It's just like plastered everywhere. A lot of businesses are called Astor whatever. They were a super prominent family in New York City. And the reason for this, they were actually one of the first Dutch settlers on the island and they had this like prestigious title at the time of a true knickerbocker or in today's terms like a native new yorker which obviously makes you cooler (laughs) like you were there from the beginning from the get-go and ward definitely knew this about them he set his sights on the highest highest bid which was getting in the good graces of the asters he wanted to share that spotlight and potentially the wealth So back to the Patriarchs, Ward's 25 to 50 person male club. He had this club, but oddly, I don't know why he did this, but I mean, I know why he did this, but it just doesn't really make sense. He invited Caroline Shermerhorn Astor, who was Mrs. Astor, to advise the Patriarchs. So he invited her in kind of like as the one female member, I guess. It's kind of like giving fraternity sweetheart in a way, but she came in to help advise his club. And this gave Ward an opportunity to get on her good side. They became friends because of this. Caroline was hugely influential and the envy of everyone in town. So Ward positioned himself 
as her right-hand man, pretty much. Together, they worked on the 400 list and got it published in the New York Times. So it was kind of a joint effort, though it was his idea. So 400 names of people who were deemed cool and influential, the New York Society published in the Times. Society pages began describing events as having McAllister's 400 in attendance. So if you were in this 400, you were going to be reported about, like you were going to be in the tabloids. Like it was a very coveted position, obviously, and events were only as good as however many members of the 400 were there. And the number 400 actually, because of this, became pretty symbolic in New York City. It became a very important and valued number in New York. A family might even use 400 roses or something extravagant like that, but 400 specifically to adorn their house for a daughter that was going to be presented to society, things like that. Like 400 was a lucky number. Other cities even took a page out of the New York book and created their very own 400 lists. So it became this thing. And interestingly enough, I was going through the list of the 400. I'm going to link it in the show notes. You can still read it. But some people that weren't on the list included like pretty big names, the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgan, like big names of New York old society were not on the list. But get this, the whole time that Ward McAllister was controlling the puppet strings of New York City society, forging these social relationships between wealthy New Yorkers, Ward himself lived in a rather modest house on West 36th Street. He was not rolling in the dough. He didn't live in a palace, but he obviously found ways to talk himself up at dinner parties so you wouldn't even know and rip on other people to make himself seem better than them, though he was completely talking out of his ass. Like It just goes to show you really don't know anything about people's financial standings. Not that finances are the most important thing, but to him, it, it really was. Like He was saying a lot of the people that were on the 400 list were wealthy, and that was really one of the deciding factors of being on the list. Anyway, so Ward McAllister was, put simply, obsessed with the rich and famous and those who were of influence. And through being obsessed with that, he made himself of influence. He wanted to be close to these people in hopes that a bit of their magic and sparkle would rub off on him. And it really did. Like his efforts kind of made him famous, you know, at least in New York City society. But as one might assume, based on the superficiality of his goals and his intentions, Ward McAllister's influence did not last. And I think personally, the reason for it was he just got too big-headed with it all. He got too big of an ego and thought that he was indestructible because really the blow that knocked him from his pedestal was when he decided to publish a memoir, a tell-all memoir airing the dirty laundry of everyone on the list and like people that considered him friends. He literally aired the dirty laundry of everybody in this memoir, thinking it might make him cooler or more feared, but really everyone just turned their backs on him and he had no legs to stand on. So it it really just made him look pathetic. And after the publication of the memoir, the magazine Town Topics, which once reported rumors about the 400, began calling Ward McAllister Mr. McHustler. So by the time he died in 1895, a historian wrote that McAllister and Mrs. Astor had long parted ways. So he actually died five years after his memoir. I'm assuming the stress of it all probably just expedited the process. Like he was probably not doing well. But by the time he died, they were no longer friends. Caroline Astor and McAllister were not friends anymore. And apparently she had a dinner party 
on the night or day of his funeral and didn't even cancel the party, didn't go, like didn't care, which just from the grave, Ward McAllister was probably infuriated. But he actually, interestingly enough, passed away while he was dining alone. So the king of dinner parties was dining alone and passed away in total social disgrace in January of 1895. Several years later, author William Sidney Porter, who is better known by his pen name O. Henry, you might have heard of him, released a collection of short stories that he called The Four Million, expressing his opinion that every human being in New York was worthy of notice, not just the 400, which warmed my heart to hear that someone was just showing how absolutely bonkers it is that you can just like determine these 400 people are the coolest ones. That's so messed up. These are adults, guys. These aren't kids. These are adults who are deciding these stupid rules and making it this like exclusive club. And that's not what New York City is. There's room for everybody here. So I was happy to read that part. But you guys might have heard of the Gilded Age TV show, which I am obsessed with. I watched it incomplete in like two days. I was obsessed with it. So if you haven't watched it, definitely give it a shot. I think it's on HBO. Pretty positive. But Ward McAllister is in the show. He is a small part. But he's depicted by actor Nathan Lane. And when he was asked about Ward McAllister, about the guy um, that he was playing, he said, his legacy is essentially forgotten. Thank God. Can't we all just get along? Amen, Nathan Lane. I love Nathan Lane. He plays really great characters. But to echo his point, can't we all just get along? I know it's just like a human thing for there to be tears of this or like who's richer than who or who has more followers than who. But at the end of the day, we're like thinking back on all of our life's accomplishments. What are we really going to think of? We're going to think of how deeply we loved, like our friendships, our relationships, how we've connected with people and not the numbers. You know, it's not going to be about the numbers. I don't think it will. Oh, but anyway, guys, I mean, I'm still obviously I'm still wrapping my head around this whole influencer thing. I don't think I'm ever going to understand it fully. Even if I'm in it, it's going to be hard for me to understand. It's going to be hard for me to figure out whether or not I'm happy being this thing. Like, I just don't know because like it just does appear that you, this sort of popularity thing follows you into any career. But it's just influencers. We put it all out for everyone to see. It's just so public. And you know, when certain influencers have feuds with other ones, like a TikToker has a feud with another TikToker, it's all so public. Meanwhile, someone could be having a fight in their office with their coworker right now on Slack and no one will know. Like, <laughs> no one will know. It's not so public. So people don't think it's happening. It's happening everywhere. It happens everywhere. But people just love to tear down anything that they can fixate on that's so public that gives them so many receipts and so many options of things to hate because it's just so much of our lives are documented. Ah, anyway, this has been my episode, guys, on, I guess, influence. I don't know what I'm going to title this, but <laughs> I hope you guys found this interesting. I'm going to have my sources linked in the show notes of this episode. Thank you guys for listening. And I will talk to you all next week on another episode of Thick and Thin. And actually tomorrow I'm dropping a new episode of Match Made in Manhattan. So check that out. And yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.